Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, don't forget, we have a new book out uh, called Understanding Viruses. You can find it by going to Amazon and typing in Finding Genius. It's the result of interviews with uh, 25 top virologists uh, asking the very difficult questions about virology. So check it out there. Uh, today, my guest is Nicholas Robakis, the AP Slaner Professor for Alzheimer Disease Research at the Icon School of Medicine, Sinai. So, Nicholas, thank you for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Well, what got you interested in it at such a young age? Yeah, I was very young. I was working initially with bacteria and viruses. And then there was a a move to uh, start also applying molecular biology and genetics to try to understand human disorders. Okay. And that's how I got interested in Alzheimer's because I was also working uh, uh, on, uh, you know, med-cow's disease, med-cow's disorders. Yeah, I've heard about that. It's probably I was also working on that. And slowly I dropped that and I, I kept working on Alzheimer's disease. Well, it's interesting you should mention that. Has anyone ever found prions to be associated with Alzheimer's disease or no? Uh, it's still unclear. There are some similarities, like the deposition of amyloid, that in some cases we see that also in med-cow disorders, that we call it prion disorder. 
But there is one fundamental difference, very important difference between the two diseases. One is transmissible and the other is not. And the transmissible is the prion disorders can be transmitted. But at, thus far, we have no evidence that AD is transmissible. Okay. So well, that is, that's a, a, a very important difference between the two disorders. Right, right. Does anyone know how Alzheimer's disease starts? I mean, you've been doing it for, like you said, 40 years. What have you discovered about it that uh, is very significant to you? We have discovered lots of things. We learned a lot about it. Does anyone understand how it starts? Yeah, we do not know. I mean, we know only risk factors. In other words, like aging. Aging is the biggest risk factor of Alzheimer's disease. But before I go there, let me tell you that there are two, two forms of Alzheimer's disease. One is the genetic form, which we call familial Alzheimer's disease. And the other is the sporadic form of the disease. The familial form is due to genetic mutations. In other words, it comes from, from our genes, mutant genes. So, and people who have these genetic abnormalities, they will, we know that they will develop Alzheimer's disease at a certain age. And we can associate the mutation with the age of onset. Okay? So what, we have some uh, mutations that they the cause... What are the mutations called? And what's the approximate age at which people will get Alzheimer's if they have those mutations? There are many, there are many mutations. They're being characterized by uh, the amino acid number. Okay. So I don't think we should go into that in detail. But what is important to know is that depending on the mutation, we can say when an individual will develop Alzheimer's disease, when the disease will start. We can predict the disease onset, the age of onset. Luckily enough, that's not very common, the familial Alzheimer's disease. It's less common than the sporadic AD, which is much more spread and, and, and much more frequent in our populations. But the sporadic AD, we don't exactly know how it starts. I'm answering your, your, your question how it starts. The familial form, we know. It starts with a mutation. It's, it is genetics. And that, those mutations are being inherited from the parents. So anybody who has these mutations, we know he has very high probabilities of developing the familial form of the disease. Well, if mutations cause some forms of it, why wouldn't there be selection pressure to get rid of them? Why would it be heritable and continue question. for so long? That's a very nice, nice question. Okay, there, there are many uh, reasons for that. One reason is that usually these mutations, they become evident after the reproductive age, okay? So past the reproductive age, age there is much less pressure uh, from, from development, okay? Because the individual has already reproduced or, or not. So uh, that, that's why. So they are usually after 40. And as you probably know, we developed in, uh, in days and, and uh, eras where people did not live long. By 40 years, people start dying, or, or even uh, 35, okay? So those, th that time, there was not evolutionary pressure. So that's, I'm asking, I'm answering your question, how come these mutations, evolution did not get rid of these mutations? The main okay. thing is that. The other, the other possibility is that, that we have also, I mean, mutations are being, are being always been formed, been due to, to cosmic rays, to oxidative factors, 
So we mutate all the time, but only a few of those mutations are usually detrimental. Most of them are neutral, or some of them may even be uh, good for our survival. Okay, so in the sporadic Alzheimer's, what age range does it tend to start? Oh, that usually we're talking about 70 to 70 and above years of age. And, and when, you, when you observe people's brains that have Alzheimer's, can you backtrack and estimate when they first started having plaque production or tau tangles? Is there any way to look uh, back and figure that out? Yeah, well, yeah, usually what brains we look at, we look at, at uh, post-mortem brain. And we know that approximately from the time of the disease onset until death takes about 10 to 13 years. So usually when, when, when somebody's brain has the hallmarks of the disease, usually that individual probably had the disease for about 10 years. 30 years? 10, 10. Oh, 10 years. Oh, okay. So the average... It takes about 10, old... 10, 10 to 13 years from the start until death. It takes about 13 years, I would say. 12 to 13 on the average. Okay, but so when, you, when you're looking at a post-mortem brain, you know, the person's died of it, you think it, the whole thing started about 10 to 13 years before? Yes, that's right. Well, what about onset of symptoms, though? Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, the, oh, okay. uh, when, oh. when, when symptoms become overt, becomes, become clear. Well, what I'm wondering then is, from the time that symptoms become overt, if you backtrack in time, when do you think the person first started having plaques and tangles appear in their brain before symptoms? Actually, we, don't, we, the, we do not know. The answer is really something that we still are not clear about when when uh, those neuropathological hallmarks become overt and or or become uh, start forming. Now, don't forget that many people in their 80s or late 70s they have a lot of amyloid and even they may have tangles, but they are fine. They have no dementia. So by by finding plaques. And tangles does not necessarily mean that the owner of that brain was demented. About one third of all aged people have as much amyloid as people with AD. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. But they have no overt signs of dementia. Oh, okay. So there is not really a good correlation between the amount of amyloid and dementia. That's an old problem, very old problem. That's why we cannot use only the neuropathology to say that, that the individual was demented because we have, we have many people who have such brains, but they're fine. So we need also to know whether the guy during his life was de- had dementia, and we combine the clinical the clinical manifestation of dementia with the neuropathology to conclude that the person had Alzheimer's. We need both. Okay, I understand. 
Oh, is there any way to image people's brains while they're alive? CT yes. Scan, PET scan, MRI, and what's, yes, what's yes. So. Yeah, we do it now with several, but they are very helpful, those technologies. MRI and PET scans and, uh, and, and other kind of scans and other kinds of things. But again, we also need to combine that with dementia. As we yes. said, many normal people have amyloid, but they are not demented. Right. Okay, so if you scan someone's brain that has amyloid and is demented, versus someone that has amyloid and is not demented, what's the difference that's observed? Well, the dementia. If no, I mean, the on the person... scan itself, the scan, can you see any physical difference? Yeah. If you scan, let's say, two 80-year-olds, one has dementia, one doesn't, what will you see differently in their brains? Yeah, it means there are other factors that cause a dementia that we do not see there. In other words, the amyloid that it's there, it's not causing dementia. So that means that we that it's more than just amyloid. That's all it means. Well, right, but is there a pattern to the amyloid, you know, in people that have dementia versus not? Maybe there's uh, some differences that can be picked up on a scan. Oh, yeah, definitely there are differences. Maybe, yeah. The, the problem that we have and we're trying to clarify is that we do not know what other factors are involved. For example, from epidemiological studies, we know that if somebody has diabetes, for example, I'll give you an example, will have higher probabilities of developing Alzheimer's. Or uh, if somebody has a good education, usually it has lower chances of developing Alzheimer's. Uh, or cardiovascular problems. Usually people with cardiovascular problems also have higher chances of developing Alzheimer's disease. But these are low risk factors that you have to understand. It doesn't mean that if somebody has diabetes will necessarily develop Alzheimer's. And there are plenty of people with cardiovascular problems, they never develop Alzheimer's disease. So it's a very complicated problem because we are complicated beings. So our brain uh, relies on thousands of different uh, pathways and, uh, and functions to function properly. So if one of those go, go wrong, we develop problems in cognition. So it's not that easy to identify exactly what goes wrong because there are many, many possible pathways to something to go wrong in, our, wrong in our brains because they are very, very complicated. They are very complicated machines. I've, I've heard some people postulate that Alzheimer's is like a type 3 diabetes. There's insulin resistance in the brain cells to sugar. Have you run across that theory? Well, yeah, of, course, of, course, of course, I know this, this. But it doesn't matter what they say, what I'm saying. It matters much more what the data you say, and I don't think there is data there to support, to at least thus far, to support that conclusion that because we have plenty of diabetes people, they do not have Alzheimer's. Okay, so what theories um, are you working on? What are you postulating causes Alzheimer's? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, uh, we're working uh, with familial Alzheimer's. We have a model, and we're trying to find out what this model tells us about the sporadic AD and the familially. And we use this model because we know that AD mutations cause the disease. That we know. Okay? So if we find, if we discover the mechanism by which the AD mutations cause Alzheimer's disease, we can extrapolate and we can learn a lot about sporadic AD because they are very similar, the two diseases. Are you talking about epigenetic changes? 
correlated with Alzheimer's or underlying yes. DNA mutation? Epigenetic, uh, but we have the, gene- the, the genetic change. We know it's change in one amino acid. One amino acid is causative. A change in that amino acid is causative. What we need to know, what's the mechanism by which this amino acid, one mutation, okay, starts the cascade that that results in neurodegeneration because Alzheimer's disease is the result of neurodegeneration. Neurons in our brains die at very high rate in the Alzheimer's brain. And we do not know how exactly these neurons die and what causes the neuronal death, the accelerated neuronal death. That's the central question of is what causes the acceleration in the neuronal death. It doesn't take a lot to understand that diseases like diabetes or cardiovascular disease uh, will also help, will accelerate this tendency to neuronal death. Okay, there are risk factors now. They help the disease to manifest itself, but does not necessarily mean that they are causative. Is there a pattern in the neuronal death in Alzheimer's patients? Can you observe that through scans? Is it preferentially attack yeah. the front lobe or yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. where does it go? There are some neuronal areas that are more affected than, affected than others. For example, in an area that, that we call hippocampus or entorhinal cortex, the, we think that that's where the disease starts and neuronal and neurons start dying. And then it spreads to the rest of the cortex. So it's a cortical disorder. Uh, so we know that. And we know that uh, some neurons develop what we call neurofibrillary tangles, which probably you heard of, and some areas develop amyloid plaques. Now, there was there were theories that the amyloid plaques is the causative agent of the disease. And if we stop the amyloid plaques or clear up the amyloid plaques, we will cure the disease. Unfortunately, this theory did not work. Uh, or it doesn't seem to be working because we were able to clear, clean the brain from the amyloid plaques. But as far as we know, and this is going on now for decades, we know that the disease continues regardless of the, of the clearing up of the amyloid plaques. And what do you think the purpose of the plaques is? Do you think it's to heal you know, damaged areas of the brain? Right. Or do you people, think they, yes. Where do they come from and why? Right. We don't have clear data for that either, but some people think that the amyloid plaques may be beneficial. That's a possibility. And that possibility is also the case with the neurofibrillary tunnel, the tau, we call it. I'm sure you heard about it. There is a possibility that by but tau by precipitating, the toxic form of tau comes out of solution. And because most of the biologically biologically active agents work in soluble form, by by becoming insoluble, they lose their activity. They become they become less active and less toxic because they precipitate out of solution. Okay, so there are some people that think that that's the role of the neurofibrillary tunnels may even be ben- beneficial. Okay, huh. so, but, but I heard the, 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 best... the amyloid is on the outside of the cells and the tau tangles are on the inside of the cells. That's right. So I guess now the, now the amyloid, yeah, the amyloid. By being, being outside of the cell and being precipitated, it takes away from solution toxic amyloid. That's a possibility. But we do not really have clear answers yet to those. We have tons of questions. So uh, Alzheimer's disease is still in the beginning compared, for example, to cancer. Cancer, we started in the 
50s or early 60s with Alzheimer's, we started in the late 80s and early 90s. So we need time to understand the disorder. Are there any differences in people, again, that have plaques but don't have dementia and plaques and they do have dementia? You know, what about the tau tangles? Are you able to look at that and see if there's a correlation? Yeah, there is, there is some correlation between tau abnormalities. By that, we mean the neurofibrillary tunnels and the phosphorylation, of hyperphosphorylation. So there is some correlation between tau abnormalities and Alzheimer's disease. The problem is that many neurons in our brain, when somebody has Alzheimer's disease, die without ever forming tau, okay? So, so it's not clear that it's only tau. But as we, as we speak now currently, there are efforts to, cl- to uh, get rid of the abnormal tau and see if that will help the patient, the cognition. Thus far, it doesn't seem to be the case, but the jury is still out. We really cannot say yet. But I think we're going to be able to say within the next two or three years, because there are lots of experiments now going on against tau. So the likelihood of amyloid plaques is much higher than of tau tangles, right? What do you mean a probability much higher? Well, it seems like in people with Alzheimer's, when you look at a postmortem brain, do you always find amyloid and plaques? Or do you, By definition. Amyloid and tau? Or do you find By definition. Only, only amyloid and not tau? Okay. By definition, to call something Alzheimer's disease, the brain must have plaques and tangles. Okay. If the brain has somebody, let's say, has a dementia, during his life, and you open the brain, and there is no plaques and tangles, you say this is not Alzheimer's disease. So by definition, you have to have those pathological hallmarks to declare that the disease is Alzheimer's. Now, we do have what we call plaques on the Alzheimer's. In other words, some people have the, the dementia of the Alzheimer type, but in the brain, they only have plaques. And on the other side, we have a lot of diseases cognitive disorder, okay, that we have tangles but no plaques, okay? So, in other words, there are many different uh, etiologies and pathways that the brain can lose neurons in addition to the presence of plaques and tangles. Um, if you, if, have you been able to look at the brains of people that have died that don't have Alzheimer's, but they, you know, and if so, do they have plaques? Do they have tangles or no. they'll only have plaques? As, right. As we briefly uh, mentioned before, there are lots of people uh, who are normal and they die at the age of 80, 85, 90, and they have as much amyloid as the Alzheimer's people, but yet they are not demented. That's why we say there is no correlation between... But but do they have have tangles though? They may have amyloid and again be healthy, no, no dementia, but do they have tau tangles as well? So yes, some of them do. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. That's correct. Oh, so sporadic Alzheimer's. I mean, do you think that it's it's still a genetic mutation that causes it? And if so, when would it arise? Would it, yeah, would it have been with you yeah. your whole life or just it suddenly in, happens when you're older, 70, 80? Okay, no. In familial, the genetic mutations that you mentioned, in familial Alzheimer's, definitely I mean, the genetic is very clear. The Alzheimer's disease is caused because of the mutation. As, as I know you're born, you're born with it, but but again, in sporadic Alzheimer's, yeah, 
is there a genetic mutation that's responsible? And if so, when does it arise? Oh, okay, okay. No, it's not one or two, but the genetics is still may still be very important because we have observed that people with relatives that had Alzheimer's disease, these people have higher probability of developing Alzheimer's disease than people without relatives with Alzheimer's, okay? So apparently the genetics is there also, but it's complicated. There are many genes. It's a polygenetic or polygenic disease that many genes together contribute, okay? So that's why the genetics of the, I'm talking about the sporadic AD. That's why the genetics of the sporadic AD is very complicated. And in the contrast, the genetics of the familial AD is very simple. As you said, it's one mutation. That in the sporadic AD, we have what we call polymorphy, which means there are somehow normal variants that are in the population. And some form of these variables also seem like promoting the disease. Because if you examine Alzheimer's disease genetically, Alzheimer's disease patients, you'll find that people that have this kind of variant have higher level of Alzheimer's. So there are normal genes in other words, some variations of them that they contribute to the development of the disease. But apparently that's not enough because there are many people who have these variants but still do not have Alzheimer's. So there is there are other factors and that's what we're trying to find out. What other factors are there? That could be diabetes, could be heart diseases, could be cancer, could be lots of different things. So what's the difference in someone that has sporadic versus familiar Alzheimer's in terms of their symptoms uh, and their, their progression? Is it faster, right. slower, different? Yeah. Okay, there are some differences. There are some clinical differences. The neuropathology is very similar, uh, but clinically, they're not identical. For example, the familial AD is usually more toxic. In other words, they die sooner than it takes, doesn't take 15 years. It takes probably less than uh, 10 years or, or, or eight years. So they are more toxic in general. And there, there are also changes, uh, differences in depression and other kinds of variables. They're not exactly the same. But in general, they can be classified as Alzheimer's dementia. And the neuropathology is very similar. It's plaques and tangles. Okay. I just didn't know if, they, if the one progresses faster. But like you said, the yes. familial... The familiar right. is more toxic. So what does that mean? It just the progression is faster? Yeah, or exactly, the, uh, exactly. The progression. It's faster than the progression. A lot faster or a little faster? Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's it's measurable. We can measure it and we can conclude that. Therefore, it's measurable. Okay. Gotcha. Um, is there any difference that you notice in Alzheimer's in men or women or different ethnicities, how it affects uh, yeah. them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is some evidence and that's epidemiological or statistical evidence. Okay, I want to make that clear. This is, there is small difference. It's the same way that the people with education seem to have a slightly lower probability of developing the disease. It looks like uh, women may have a little bit higher probability to develop the sporadic AD. But again, the, the, the difference is small and depends on many other factors as well. So it looks like okay. males may have a little bit a higher probability of developing the disease. So what uh, specifically are you are you researching right now? What are you, what's the latest and greatest? The mechanism by which the FAD mutations cause Alzheimer's disease. The mechanism oh, by okay. which 
the FAD mutants promote neurodegeneration because as we said, the, the causative uh, situation is the neurodegeneration, is the death of neurons that causes the problems with cognition. Well, what can you do? Can you use like the, you know, the special um, fluorescent glucose and do a brain scan or yeah, how do can you get to the yes, cells yes, in the brain to observe That's that? right. Yeah, we're doing that also. Uh, that because the brains that suffer from a disease have different rate of metabolism than the normal brain. So we can uh, we can measure also the same another variable that we measure, but uh, all of them are not really 100%. There is always caveats. The other thing is that uh, that the Alzheimer's disease brain is smaller because it loses mass. And you can you can uh, uh, see that in a pixel. You can uh, by using MRI. Okay, so that is uh, the other methodology that's been used. So, uh, you know, mass of the brain. So we have various can, techniques. Can you can you look at uh, the transcriptomics of these cells or the? Yes, that's how correct. How do you get that's how do you question. get to these cells to observe them? We call it transcriptomics. <laughs> we. And many laboratories, and mine, uh, we are looking to find out whether the trans- transcriptional differences uh, between in the neuronal cells of Alzheimer's disease brain and in neuronal cells of normal brains. We want to see whether there are constant differences and measurable differences in the transcriptome, as, as we call it. In other words, in the transcription. And by that, we mean that the operation that makes proteins from genes, okay? So we call that transcription is involved in how the genes is being translated into proteins. Because the proteins are the workers of our brains. They're doing the work, okay? So we want to see whether this very important operation called transcription is being affected differently in AD than in normal. And that is a very, very... uh, I mean, uh, difficult and time-consuming uh, operation and cost lots of money. Mm, okay. But you're right. Uh, uh, transcription is very important. The genomic, the genomic is important. You know, very few neurological disorders of the brain, by the way, we know how to cure. There are many. There are a lot of different cognition problems, you know, and cognitive disorders. We start, we're just starting. It's going to be a long way before we really understand how brain cells die and why they die differently in a different diseases. Are there any uh, biomarkers, anything that these cells will shed into the bloodstream that can be picked up and observed? Yeah, sure. There are some biomarkers like phosphorylated tau, for example, uh, maybe neurofilaments. Yes, yes, we follow them. That's correct. Okay, well, very good. Well, Dr. Robakis, where is the best place for people to go to learn more about your research? To my NIH grants and my papers. <laughs> also, at Mount Sinai, we usually have a website. Okay. And okay, we take there what we are doing. Excellent. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's all public, but, you know, it's esoteric. It's, somebody has to know some form of biology a little bit to understand this so for the you know for the people that are not experts it looks like difficult to understand and and uh, of course that is uh, expected okay well very good well, well thank you for coming on the podcast i appreciate it yeah sure if you like this podcast 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.